Hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 194 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Today's episode is a look at anti-corruption enforcement and compliance trends in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry. Well, hello, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Um, hope everything is slowly getting back to normal here, uh, and uh, hope you're uh, keeping busy and staying safe and staying healthy. Uh, and uh, reconnecting with your family and, uh, and, and your friends. Anyways, today uh, I wanted to uh, take a look at anti-corruption risks and compliance in the drug and uh, medical device industry. Uh, this follows uh, an, a Blue Umbrella web webinar we put on uh, just last week, and I wanted to sort of outline some of the issues uh, and uh, get us up to speed on this, and before we get started, let's hear a word from our sponsor, uh, Blue Umbrella. How are you managing your third-party compliance program? Is your technology vastly assisting you or getting in your way? Blue Umbrella, in concert with some of the largest, most sophisticated compliance programs in the world, has devised a user-friendly, customizable platform that automates tasks and seamlessly integrates with adjacent enterprise systems. Blue Umbrella has employed advanced technology, along with a healthy dose of common sense, to make sure that compliance professionals using status are able to focus on managing issues that arise, monitoring the health of their program, and proactively anticipating risks as a business partner. Curious? Contact us at blueumbrella.com for a quick demo. Okay. Uh Let's take a look at some of the issues uh, in anti-corruption enforcement in this uh, pharmaceutical, drug, and medical device uh, industry. Um, and uh, this is just an overview, but um, you know, over the last 12 years, actually going back to 2010, uh, you know, we had the industry sweep, is what it was called, uh, and we saw a lot of cases that were brought uh, uh, back in those early days. Uh, the height of the cases actually was 2016, where we had nine cases brought in one year. Uh, last year, 2020, we had four. In 2019, we had one. 2018, we had three. In 2017, we had two. Interestingly, on the top 10 uh, corporate FCPA settlements involving drug and medical device companies, we still have the biggest being Teva which was uh, 2016 for conduct in Russia primarily, which was 516 million. Uh, last year we had, however, the Novartis uh, Alcon case uh, in the 340 millions, and we had the year before that Fresenius, and then number four is Herbal Life, which was 2020. And then you take a big jump back to Johnson & Johnson in 2011, which was for 70 million. So the last, uh, the four biggest cases are in the, you know, from 2016 on, and three of the top four cases are in the last two years. And I think that's instructive for, I think, how this is going to pan out under the new administration. Remember, 2016 was the biggest year in pharmaceutical and medical device enforcement. And the industry has always been a top FCPA enforcement focus for a, a variety of reasons. One, it's a lucrative industry. There's tons of foreign official interactions because 
uh, healthcare systems overseas uh, are tend to be uh, government controlled. Uh, you know, you have some countries where it's a mix of public and private, but there's always a huge amount of government uh, regulation and uh, governance over the uh, healthcare system. So uh, there are opportunities then for improper payments, um, and uh, given the foreign, uh, the you know basically given the role of foreign officials in the healthcare system. And uh, so foreign purchasers uh, are foreign officials for purposes of the FCPA. That's a well-established principle these days. Physicians, healthcare officials, and staff who are employed by public hospitals and government, let's say, ministries, health ministries, are considered foreign officials. Uh, and so we get into some uh, difficult issues because of that. Interestingly, when you look at top risk areas for enforcement, about 70% of the cases that have been brought over the years involve uh, distributors and agents involved in bribery schemes. 20% include gifts, meals, and entertainment and travel. Uh, and then we've seen some charitable donations cases in a big area, uh, and particularly in the uh, Novartis case, was medical conferences. Um, two interesting cases I wanted to bring up from 2020 and two interesting sort of new enforcement risks or permutations. One was the Novartis Alcon case in 2020, which included um, bribery payments that were made through uh, to doctors who submitted uh, clinical trial data. Uh, DOJ has always tried to go after clinical data, uh, trial data, and manipulation of clinical trial data by government officials in response to bribes. They've never been able to bring a you know, really focused case on that. And Novartis uh, Alcon involved not really clinical trial data because it was post-approval, but it was an epi epidemiological study and the payments were made to doctors for collection of the data, but they really weren't for legitimate data. They really were just to reward physicians for the number of prescriptions they were writing for Novartis or Alcon products. Um, so that's one interesting new wrinkle we've seen in 2020. Another one is in the Alexion Pharmaceuticals case, which was an FCP, uh, SEC case. 2020, the high-cost uh, drug that Alexion offered required specific government approval for specific patients. The cost is so high, there are patient approval processes that are run by the government and a consultant was used in that case to funnel bribes to these decision makers for individual patients because the, uh, the drug was so lucrative just to get that prescription uh, approved and obviously with the payments uh, that were going to be done in those areas. So uh, I'm not going to go through, there are four sort of major cases but I don't want to go through in detail, but Novartis and Alcon I've mentioned to you uh, which was a, a big case involving Greece and Vietnam and third-party payments, but also major, major investments in illegal payments made uh, to healthcare professionals uh, to attend um, medical congresses, international medical congresses, and approximately 6,000 per individual, which were the payments were made in exchange for um, uh, uh, prescriptions. Uh, written by the doctors. We, I mentioned Herbal Life, which was a big case as well. 
uh, in herbal life, that's really uh, just a lot of bribery payments, hospitality, and gifts to Chinese officials for a variety of reasons. Fresenius uh, was settled in 2019, and that involved uh, payments to public physicians and health officials in relation to uh, worldwide use of dialysis uh, machines and uh, products. And then I mentioned to you the, the Alexion case uh, as well. But let's look at some of the, what I would say the risk areas are, and the most important one that I've already mentioned is the distributors. It's a cost-effective strategy for drug and device companies to enter new markets. You don't have to bring, it's a smaller investment than opening up a new sales office, and usually the distributor is familiar with the market, the regulatory framework, and can leverage business quickly. Um, and because of that, uh, the, they play a key role here in that most distributors uh, purchase products and resell, uh, and they, uh, and oftentimes you don't know as the supplier the ultimate price uh, or the customer, but uh, you are liable under the FCPA and the UK Bribery Act, and liability is well established even in the case of a pure reseller. Calling a distributor a customer does not alter that legal liability, uh, and the risk multiplies when you are working with a distributor and providing marketing allowances, rebates, discounts. Uh, and other supports and other sources of funds that can be used by the distributor to pay bribes uh, to the government officials to increase sales. So we look at pricing as a risk factor because of discounts, rebates, the retail spread. We look at also government tenders where you may have distributors that are involved in, let's say, a venture or the distributor may it's him or herself or itself uh, directly participate in a bid with partners, their relationships in the tenders that are important for government officials, and we also run into distributor risk factor being sub-distributors and sub-agents. Sub-distributors in particular in China and sub-agents are very risky propositions. Um, and remember, a distributor is looking for sources of cash, bribery money, discounts, rebates, and slush funds. Uh, increasing the price spread between the company cost and the ultimate cost to fund uh, bribery uh, in the marketing fund allowance allowances uh, have to be audited and tightly controlled to make sure that that is not used to fund f to fund a bribery uh, scheme. So the way I look at their schemes to fund bribes is, you look at the wholesale and retail price difference and is the difference passed to the customer, whether there are discounts that are authorized or the proper amount, uh, rebates, if you, uh, if you have hopefully a defined rebate program and is properly administered with proper controls. I mentioned marketing development funds and support that have to be audited. Uh, and of course, through the distributors, we also run into the risk of gifts, meals, and entertainment. Marketing development funds depend upon, you know, the type of program. Some are done in-kind where they, you know, the uh, manufacturer may pay for a distributor to attend, let's say, an event, an industry event, or to pay the uh, fee to set up, you know, a booth and market the program, market the product at the program. Um, but there are defined categories. It can be a cash support, an annual, a quarterly payment, 
or it can be reimbursement, and there you have to make sure that uh, the, the services or whatever was done in the marketing side was actually done uh, and delivered and in-kind where you can pay for things and uh, then provide the in-kind support uh, to the, uh, the distributor uh, in, that, in that scenario. But there is, when we talk about third parties and, and consultants in particular, and in the Alexion case, we had consultants that were used to try to get the patient approvals, um, it's a real delicate balance because there are legitimate consultant functions and uh, the legitimate reasons exist for, for example, for hiring a foreign healthcare professional for education, research, training, uh, and consulting on products, teaching, let's say, customers how to use a product, a medical device. And internal controls in that case are needed to, with regard to these interactions to make sure uh, that they're monitored and determination on distinguishing between legitimate and illegitimate patient, uh, payments to government officials. And to make sure that uh, these are legitimate services, you really have to be careful about what services are provided, verifying the service by the consultant, uh, documenting the invoices uh, in the payments to make sure that all of that uh, lines up together. We also look at conferences, and medical conferences are always a high-risk proposition. Uh, Novartis Al Alcon I mentioned in 2020. We have the classic case of Pfizer in 2012, where sponsorships are basically exchanged for purchase commitments or purchase behaviors. Um, and it's a reward, uh, and a, a, it's an incentive for foreign doctors uh, to uh, write prescriptions to get these uh, sponsor, you know, get sponsorships to these congresses paid. Lavish payments are made. They may even include uh, spouses uh, and even children. And these are really, you have to be, again, very careful through documenting the activities, verifying the activities, that everything is uh, being done properly. So the future of compliance and how do we get at a lot of these third-party management issues, risk management issues, is automation. And you probably heard me talk uh, uh, ad nauseum about the need to automate your third-party platform uh, and make sure you have all your uh, third parties uh, entered into a platform where you can monitor behaviors and payments uh, and monitor their activities. Uh, this provides you great uh, ability to, to uh, sort of track behaviors by your high-risk uh, third parties. So the way we get at the problem of these third parties and particularly distributors is we do tiered risk ranking calculations and beneficial ownership inquiries. We document, we screen, we get contractual certifications and representations and we train and we monitor and then audit uh, as necessary these, uh, these distributors. Sub-distributors and sub-agents are difficult. How do we get at the risk? And it oftentimes depends upon how much leverage we have over the distributor itself. In other words, if the distributor is hungry for business with our company and we're a well-established company, we can get a provision and a requirement that the distributor cannot engage a sub-distributor or sub-agent without completing uh, your company's due diligence process. Sometimes you can get that, sometimes you can't, um, but 
in, all, in many cases, there is no visibility uh, into the sub-distributor or sub-agent, and those are situations where you get the greatest risk. Now, you can push liability down for the sub-agents and sub-distributors to the distributor uh, itself by including a requirement that they ensure compliance by the sub-agents and sub-distributors, but you need the ability to say no to onboarding that sub-distributor or sub-agent unless they meet your company's qualifications. That's the difficult, that's the difficult thing to get. Okay, we also look at the tender process because there are different models and within like one country like India, for example, we were working in different states within India with a client and there were different uh, tender processes depending upon which state you were in and it was more regularized in one versus another uh, and there were real clear standards as to how the process works, uh, who's on the board, how the application has to be, uh, you know, proposal has to be submitted. You should have an internal control tender review committee uh, for approval prior to submission. That's important and you have to have uh, as much disclosure of connections and relationships with the government agency as much as you can and you document the process and you make sure that your risks extend to making to ensuring that there's no pre-bid information or tailoring of the RFP uh, to this pre-bid information that may have been uh, uh, acquired uh, illegally through a bribery payment. Those, that's oftentimes the value of that pre-bid information can be huge uh, as well. We look at risk attributes of our third parties based upon the type of third party, the country that's uh, located uh, for, you know, a sense of how much corruption might exist in that industry. Uh, and we also sometimes look at the amount of revenue that we expect or have had in the past with, with this third party. Uh, and then depending upon the risk tiering, and let's say you divide it into high, medium, and low, then you'll have strategies and tools that apply based on the tiering. Obviously less for low risk and more for high risk. We also, uh, and we've talked uh, a lot about third party due diligence, which is defined as a reasonable inquiry, and it's not absolute certainty. It's not necessarily to conduct an investigation or detailed fact-finding exercise down to a standard proof. Um, but make sure we have a standard practice and a written policy and define an escalation process when red flags are uncovered during due diligence and also in the third party risk monitoring function and testing and auditing. Uh, the main thing to use in the onboarding process is to have a rational and consistent uh, formula that you apply. For high-risk distributors, and usually that should be about 10 to 15 percent of your population at most, uh, you should have an annual uh, review of overall operations looking for unusual changes in the business or tender performance, uh, transaction sampling and auditing on a regular basis, uh, possibly conducting a spread analysis if you uh, ensure access to the ultimate retail price in your contract. You can look at the spread between the cost that you sold the goods to them for and the uh, ultimate price that was charged the government customer. Uh, you can also ask for customer invoice audits, uh, look at any marketing fund expenditures and documentation, 
uh, and the payment sources that the distributor used, uh, for example, when paying you for certain products. Uh, and look at who the end users or ultimate customers are, robust contractual requirements, and uh, training is very important. And then what we use is a high-risk sort of uh, partnership, uh, being that the business partner inside the company, uh, you regularly speak to those people and get a sense of how this high-risk distributor is working out. Are there any unusual changes, any unusual circumstances that you have to look at? Another uh, area where we've seen uh, bribery fund, bribes funneled is uh, charitable contributions to either government officials or relatives of government officials. So we have to make sure that we know when we're making a charitable contribution, what's the purpose of the payment? Is it consistent with our charitable giving uh, guidelines? Is the payment at the request of a foreign official? And if the foreign official is associated with the charity, um, and with regard to the business of the charity uh, and with regard to your business with the foreign government, then all of these risks uh, become more significant when dealing with charitable uh, organizations. So, uh, and obviously we want to avoid any time where there's a payment that's conditioned on, uh, you know, uh, acquiring business or other be benefits. So the due diligence process we go through for charitable contributions involves uh, selection of the grantee, how did we select this person, what are the controls on the proposed grant, ongoing monitoring and auditing, earmarking funds, let's say for a building, prohibiting compensation of board members, and implementing anti-corruption compliance provisions in our charitable contribution or gift to, uh, for a, let's say, uh, foreign uh, official or foreign organization purpose. Uh, and we require certifications by the recipient regarding compliance with the FCPA, confirmation that none of the officials are affiliated with the foreign government uh, with which we do business, and a requirement that the recipient provide us audited financial statements, uh, and we have uh, strict use with of the funds that are verified uh, through this audit process. So those, we need to make sure the charitable contributions are not used as a subterfuge to uh, benefit certain uh, foreign officials. Well, that's just a quick overview of some of the issues that are going on right now in the healthcare, in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry. Uh, I didn't want to take too long on this because uh, that's just a quick overview and obviously if you're more interested in some of these issues we can definitely talk to you uh, about those and help you out. Uh, anyways, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening today and we'll see you in another week. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, M. Volkov at VolkovLaw.com. Everybody's got somebody.
Everybody got somebody 